previously on Rediscovering Don Bowles, a murder journalist. I, I had some fair play from Don Bowles last year. That uh, uh, I know. I mean, uh, that I got. And, and I've got to be a little dubious, uh, yeah, well, judging from experience. You know, once burned, it's uh, your fault. Twice burned, it's my fault. And, the Funks made the next move. They filed a lawsuit. The lawsuit alleged that they'd been wronged by the story that said they'd wiretapped Bowles. I don't know. It's just the way I've seen Bowles edit stories and edit statements. They come out meaning something altogether different. So. Yeah, well, that I've never done in my life. Uh, the Funks sued the newspaper, but they also filed suit against Bowles personally, and they named his wife for good measure. The price they wanted? $20 million. Reporters make recordings for a variety of reasons. Most often, they just want to make an accurate record of a conversation. Bowles made a habit of taping his conversations, both on the phone... Your name's Don, then? Don Bowles, B-O-L-L-E-S. ...and in person. Did you consider them your customers? Yeah. There's another reason to tape record conversations. Recordings can be used to trap somebody, get them saying something they don't want to say publicly, and that recording could be used against them. The taping Bulls did was legal, at least in Arizona, because at least one person, Bulls, knew he was recording. But it was illegal to tap into a conversation where neither party knew they were being recorded. That's what Bowles believed happened on his home phone. It was bugged. The way Bowles understood it, people in the racing industry wanted to capture him on the phone so they could find proof he was conspiring against them. They didn't find any evidence of that conspiracy. But they did create one angry reporter. I'm Richard Rellis, and this is Rediscovering Don Bowles, a murder journalist. Arizona Republic reporter Don Bowles was slapped with a lawsuit. He was being sued by the people who ran the dog tracks in Phoenix. They had long been upset with him for his coverage of the industry, especially his stories about Emprise the big company that ran the tracks with the Funks. Bulls had written about Emprise's suspected mob ties. But the lawsuit was over a particular story. The Republic had reported that Bulls's home phone had been tapped and that the racetrack folks did it. The lawsuit demanded $20 million. Despite that price tag, Bulls was able to laugh about it. I wanted to find out if I could, you know, anywhere I could borrow $20 million. <laughs> Here's Bowles talking about it more with George Johnson. He's the man who told Bowles he had been wiretapped. He knew that information, he said, because he had been hired to investigate Bowles by the racetrack owners. It's very significant to us, but we've been sued four times in the last month and a half, and three of them by this killing. You're kidding. Mm-hmm. No, this is a planned campaign. Is that right? Bulls kept hearing from law enforcement that charges were just around the corner. After all, tapping his phone was a violation of the law. But Bulls was getting impatient with the pace of events. He wanted to go on the offensive. 
here he is talking to Johnson about it, and Johnson is egging him on. By the way, they're demanding, uh, uh, they sent a letter to Mr. Pulliam today and a few others demanding a retraction of some materials. I, I haven't seen the letter yet, so I don't know what it says, but uh, apparently it's just part of this whole campaign of legal harassment, uh, and uh, I don't know what we're going to do on it. Well, Don, let me ask you this. I, I think, because, you know, the way things are right now, and, and I really didn't do myself any good by not appearing uh, from the way the, the uh, you know, public looks at it. Of course, they don't know the particulars. But I think it's about time if... Well, let me just ask you your advice on this. I just like to take the offensive against these pricks now. Mm -hmm. Bowles didn't use that language, but he shared the sentiment. Bowles was itching to file his own lawsuit against the Funks. After waiting for others to take action, Bowles took matters into his own hands. He filed his countersuit in March 1971. He named the Funks, Emprise, the Arizona Bank, and the phone company. His lawsuit contended that all of those parties conspired to invade his privacy and cause him emotional distress. Bowles wanted $2.2 million. It was about one-tenth of what the Funks wanted from Bowles, but Bowles was after more than money. He wanted to go to court. He wanted evidence. He wanted to question those involved. He wanted to win. Which, apparently, is an awful reason to file a lawsuit. In my experience and view, litigation is a poor way to spend one's free time. That's David Bodney, an attorney who handles legal matters for the Arizona Republic these days. It makes money for lawyers, but it seldom advances interests that could not otherwise be protected or resolved in a less um, contentious environment. And yet there are some people who feel like they need their day in court. Um, I really do try to persuade people that there are better ways to spend their time and their money than litigating. If you've never been party to a lawsuit, first off, count yourself lucky. It seems like a brutal process. Going to court costs a lot of money. It takes a lot of time. It permits the defendant to conduct all kinds of discovery into what your reputation really is. And it's ultimately very unsatisfying for most litigants. David Bodney mentioned discovery there. That's the process that allows one side of a lawsuit to demand documents from the other side. And legally, that material must be turned over, no matter how damaging it might be. In this case, there was a highly damaging document. Remember that memo we told you about? The one Dom Frasca, Bowles' reporting partner, wrote? It questioned the merits of the wiretapping story. We told you that memo would play a key role. And here's where it would come back. The newspaper was going to have to turn that memo over to the people suing them. The Frasca memo was three pages. It mainly outlined his concerns about running the wiretapping story. He wrote that he didn't think it should have been published. And he ended the memo with this sentence. Frankly, the reservations I had before publication have only grown. 
we showed that Frasca memo to Bodney, and here was his reaction to reading it. So he was questioning whether the story should have been published at all. Right. His story. Yeah. Not terribly helpful to the defense. For the newspaper, this memo was not good. Yeah. I mean, those are the kinds of issues you hope to sort out pre-publication. And having a reporter who doesn't think it's soup yet, um, and yet it gets published, um, is a recipe for disaster. The memo was also a tip-off to the opposing lawyers that there was dissension in the newsroom about the story and that they should find out more about it. And that's what the attorneys did. They started looking at the process used to produce the news story. They would lay bare the internal newsroom debates over publishing the stories on the supposed wiretaps. The lawsuits the Funks filed said that the articles about suspected wiretaps were published maliciously that the Republic knew that the articles contained false information, or that the newspaper didn't care whether the information was false. Both of those are difficult to prove, unless you have a memo that essentially states that. And the Funks and Emprise were just getting started. They weren't just asking for documents, now they wanted to do interviews. In legal terms, depositions. And then the really fun part for the lawyer uh, is the deposition, when we get to interrogate someone under oath for a period of hours about certain facts, and they have a duty to answer and answer truthfully. The idea is that both sides get a general idea of what will be said in the courtroom but it's also a way for lawyers to harshly question people, including the folks bringing the lawsuits. They can poke holes in their arguments or bring out damaging evidence or let them know just how costly pursuing a lawsuit would be and how maybe it would be better to just drop the whole thing. It works the same way for both sides, but in this case, it seemed particularly damaging for Bowles. the attorneys for the Funks wanted to dig deep into the inner workings of the Republic. They filed motions to depose anyone who might have touched the wiretap story. That included the newspaper's publisher, Eugene Pulliam. It's not clear who attorneys actually talked to. We only found a few depositions in those file cabinets. But first up was Bowles. He and his wife were questioned in March 1971. Not by the Funks family's lawyers at first, but by attorneys for the bank and the phone company. Bowles had named them in his countersuit. Bowles said the phone company harmed him by not protecting his call information. Similarly, he said the bank harmed him by allowing someone to get a hold of his bank account records. Here's him talking about it to Homer Bunch, the man who gave up Bowles' banking records. Oddly, Bowles decided only to sue the bank itself, not Homer Bunch personally. And Bowles called Bunch to tell him the news. We, uh, as you probably may have noticed, uh, filed a suit on uh, uh, various people the other day. And uh, I just wanted to tell you that uh, we had uh, been informed of your conversations with Mr. Johnson, etc. And we talked it over and we decided that uh, we, you know, that you were an innocent party in the whole thing.
The lawyers for the phone company and the bank had several lines of attack in their questions. We know this from a transcription of the deposition, but we don't have any audio of it. The attorneys poked holes in Bowles' lawsuit and then went in for the kill. The attorney asked Bowles how much money he had. He said that if the lawsuit were dismissed, Bowles might have to pay attorney fees for both sides. And the bank would want proof Bowles could pay that massive bill. The attorney asked how much Bowles' home was worth. Bowles said he carried a mortgage and had about $2,000 of equity in it. The attorney asked him about his cars. Bowles said he had two Plymouths. One had a, quote, bad wobble in the front. The attorney asked him if he had a stamp collection or a coin collection or anything else of value, and whether he had a savings account for his kid's college education. The point was clear. The attorney was telling Bowles the lawsuit could drive him to financial ruin. It would get worse. The next month, attorneys traveled to New Jersey for the deposition of Dom Frasca. By this time, Frasca had left the Republic. He was working for a congressman in New Jersey, and he still harbored a grudge. In his deposition, Frasca let Bowles have it. Frasca said his relationship with Bowles was professionally unpleasant. It's a far cry from how Frasca spoke about Bowles when he worked alongside him at the Republic. I tell you, he's a very honest guy, and, and, and he won't let you down, I'm sure of that. You know, I always it, heard that. Yeah, no, he won't let you down. But in his time away from the paper, Frasca dramatically changed his views. Frasca said Bowles could stretch a story. He told one anecdote, his first encounter with Bowles as a colleague, in which he said Bowles took what Frasca thought was a small detail and turned it into a front page story. Frasca said that when he did interviews alongside Bowles in the Mafia series, he was embarrassed to be working with him. Frasca said that Bowles went into stories with preconceived notions and reached unfounded conclusions. Frasca said he didn't consider Bowles a reporter. He considered him a man without honor, integrity, or ability. We know the paper's city editor, Tom Sanford, was deposed, and we know George Johnson sat for several depositions, but neither of those turned out well for Bowles. In Sanford's, the lawyers delved deep into all the decisions made in publishing the wiretapping story. That is not a pleasant prospect. Here's the current Republic attorney, David Bodney, again. Well, it, it can be really painful to have um, an outsider deconstruct the composition of a news report. And Johnson didn't hold up well as a witness. He was evasive and at one point collapsed in anguish. He was hospitalized for a while saying the pressure was getting to him. The overall cases were beginning to fall apart. In January 1973, almost three years after the wiretapping stories ran, Emprise asked the court to dismiss it from Bowles' lawsuit. The judge went one step further and declared Emprise the winner. 
The judge also ordered Bowles to pay Emprise's attorney's costs. Emprise took it easy on Bowles. It charged him $71.78, mostly for copies. We're not sure why. Maybe everyone was out of steam at this point. And in August 1973, the Funks, the newspaper, and Bowles all filed a note with the court saying they had agreed to drop everything. It's not entirely clear why. We know Bowles was motivated by wanting to prove the Funks and Emprise wronged him. Emprise and Funks had their own motive. Here's how Bill Meek saw it. He was the Republic reporter assigned to cover this legal back and forth. The reason they had all these guys out here, the lawyers and, and the lawsuits filed and so forth, was all designed to get Don to change his, his approach. It's not clear from the court record whether Bowles received any money. Settlements are usually confidential. But Bowles' wife, Rosalie, said there was no big payday. No Mercedes in the driveway. Well, we didn't get any settlement. Nothing. David Bodney, the Republic's attorney, said this is the reason lawsuits make such bad tools for getting even. It's, it's hard for people to let go of challenges to their sense of self and self-worth. It's difficult to let go. Bowles thought he had been wiretapped. His newspaper told the state about it on the front page of the Sunday paper. He suffered attacks to his personal reputation, rumors about being on the take from Vegas mobsters. He had been sued for $20 million and threatened with financial ruin. He fought through it all, hoping the truth would come out. And now it wasn't. Bill Meek, who covered all these lawsuits, said that 1973 was the year that crushed Don Bowles. It's what really brought Don down, as a matter of fact, in my opinion, uh, before, he got, before he got blown away. In 1967, before the lawsuits began, the Republic ran a half-page ad promoting Don Bowles as an investigative reporter. The ad said he'd stepped on more toes than a beginning dance instructor. But by 1974, even the paper's promotion of Bowles had changed. An ad from that year announced that Bowles would be covering the Arizona legislature. He was off the racing beat. It's not clear whether this was part of the settlement or if it was a decision Bowles made with his editors. It could be Bowles just needed a break after the stress of the dog racing saga. Either way, he was off the racing beat. It certainly made life better for his wife. Well, I liked it better when he was covering the covering Congress downtown. I liked that better. Oh, uh, when he was covering the state legislature uh -huh. rather than other stuff. Yes. Life was a bit calmer then. One of Bowles' friends at the paper was columnist Paul Dean. He was the best man at Don and Rosalie's wedding. I asked Paul Dean to describe how he saw Bowles 
after he was assigned to cover the legislature. A lightly saddened man because he wasn't doing what he wanted to be doing. I think he felt a little demoted by going to the State House. There are thems who say uh, he wanted to go to the State House. I don't believe that for a moment. Whatever the reason, officially, Bowles was assigned to cover the routine goings-on in the legislature and nothing else. This here number that they gave me, this 2718629, yeah. it, where is that, your office? Well, yeah, it's the state capitol. I have a, uh, we have a press room out here, and I work out of here. Even though Bulls had taken personal and professional hits, he was still pursuing good stories, and he still had the respect of lawmakers. Here's him talking to the House Speaker, Burton Barr. Today, the main Phoenix library in central Phoenix is named after Barr. How's every little thing You're going today? You're a good today? man. Well, I'm one of the... I love you. <laughs> you are a good man. Well, I do my very best. I uh, have never had a complaint. Okay. Even uh, when it's my ass. <laughs> it's bleeding on the submit. Whether Bowles was on a self-imposed exile from investigative reporting, or one imposed by the paper, he was still interested in doing good work. Until they say, don't write them kind of stories no more, I'm going to be right in there. Bowles was still covering the legislature in 1976. One day in January of that year, the governor decided to promote a powerful wholesale liquor dealer to the state racing commission. By sheer coincidence, that liquor dealer just happened to be the largest donor to Governor Raul Castro's election campaign. Bowles knew the man from covering the racing industry. The liquor dealer owned racehorses. He also sold liquor to the tracks. And you get the feeling Bulls didn't think he was the kind of person who should be sitting on the board that was supposed to oversee the racing industry. That liquor dealer's name was Kemper Marley. It's a name that would soon be forever linked with Bulls. On Tuesday, March 23rd, 1976, Bulls wrote a story about Kemper Marley. It strung together the past misdeeds of Marley, as chronicled in old Republic stories. How $66,000 went missing when Marley was on the state fair board. How he had been accused of stealing an engine from a state-owned truck. It wasn't really an investigative story. It's what we call in the business a clip job. But it was a story that would change everything. Later that week, a follow-up story said the governor was scheduling a meeting with Marley. The Republic editorial board weighed in that week, too. It said that Castro made a mistake in nominating Marley. The next week, Castro apparently agreed. Marley would not be a racing commissioner. The following story would come out at the trial of those accused of killing Don Bowles. At a coffee shop called Googie's in Park Central Mall, a politician from Mojave County was having breakfast with a man named Max Dunlap. Dunlap was a good friend of Kemper Marley's. He also owed Marley a great deal of money. Dunlap was reading The Republic that morning, and he read the story about Marley being forced out of the racing commission. And he said, those bastards are on old Kemp's back again. Maybe Dunlap could do his friend Kemper Marley a favor. Maybe he could get rid of the bastard at the Republic. 
next time on Rediscovering Don Bowles, a murder journalist. June 2nd happened to be Don and Rosalie Bowles' wedding anniversary. By the end of the day, it would acquire a different significance. Critically injured, Bowles gasped four words to bystanders. Mafia, Emprise, the name of a New York sports convention. No, it was in the morning. I was in there by his bedside, and I was with him when he died. Rediscovering Don Bowles, a murder journalist, was reported and voiced by me, Richard Rellis. Taylor Seeley is the lead producer. Katie O'Connell is the executive producer. Script supervision came from news editor Sean McKinnon and news director Josh Susong. Web design for this project came from John Paul McDonald. Social media was led by Danielle Woodward with help from Grace Palmieri. Special thanks to Kayla White, Maritza Dominguez, and Will Flanagan for their support. Kim Bowie provided research assistance. John Adams is our Senior Director for Storytelling and Innovation. Greg Burton is our Executive Editor. This episode included audio segments from the Arizona Memories of the 70s DVD by Arizona PBS. It also included archival audio from CBS News and KTVKTV Channel 3.